Galatians chapter 6. Um, I neglected to have anybody else actually explain to you guys why I even chose the theme of wise women and owls, mostly because I think the owls are really cute. But um, it's really based off of the chapter 3, Oh Foolish Galatians, because I really can't think of something worse that I could hear from a pastor than how foolish that I could be. And I hope that my pastor never has to say that to me. And I know there are a lot of different pastors represented here. So we want to be wise women. We don't want to be foolish women. So that was how I chose the theme. And because I'm an English teacher, everything has to have a title. And because I have some kind of weird fetish with alliteration, it also has to have alliteration in it. So the title for um, what I'm going to teach, I called it Wise Women are intimately involved and invested. So like Britt said earlier, she kind of likes to give the idea of where you're headed. Um, Intimately involved and invested is the theme for what um, I'm going to go for with chapter 6. So starting with verse 1 of chapter 6. Is everybody at chapter 6? Okay, because I know we have different translations here. So does anybody have something else for the first few words besides just brothers or brethren? Brothers and sisters. Does anybody have the one that says friends? I know the message translates it friends and a couple of the others translate it as friends. Um, It is not a masculine word. It's not meant for just the males, but it's understood that any time that Paul would use brothers, it would mean a a congregation, a crowd of men and women that would be receiving that or be hearing that letter. So I I like the translation of my friends. Um, And then the translation I actually had copied said brothers and sisters, and then I looked at my Bible, and it actually just said brothers. I thought, oh, that's not going to make the point I want to make. (laughs) So I thought I better check, and so I started looking through them all. And so it means a group of mixed people, so men and women. What it does not say is pastors. What it does not say is pastors. It says brothers and sisters, everybody, my friends, the mixed group, the church. If somebody's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It doesn't say that's the job of the people in leadership. It says that we are all in the business of restoring our family, of the people that are around us. So... If someone's caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit. We cannot restore somebody who's struggling with her flesh if we are also living by our flesh. It won't work. We can't. We can't be obedient to what Paul's asking us to do here if we're living by our flesh. Because how can we help a sister who's in sin when we're living the same way that she is? So that's why he has to clarify, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Um, For some reason, I've been fine all day, and now I have a frog in my throat. So, the next two words, should restore. It says restore. It doesn't say ignore. It doesn't say excuse, and it does not say destroy. When you know somebody intimately, is there a problem? I have water, actually, but it's not helping. Thank you, though. Some of the things that we tend to do when somebody's sinning is we tend to ignore it. Let's just pretend like it's not happening because we are not supposed to be in each other's business. Um, Sometimes, which, you know, leads to excusing it. Or we do the opposite and we destroy them. You know, we just come down on them. 
And what this says is we're to restore. Now, the Greek for that word, for restore, comes from the medical field, and it's something's broken, and you're going to fix it. That's what restoring somebody is. They're broken, and we're not supposed to leave our sisters broken, so we can't ignore it. So restored, not ignored, not excused, not destroyed. Our goal is the restoration. Then the adverb there, we're supposed to restore them gently. And we actually misuse that word in modern culture to think not harsh. But the word gentle comes from gentleman or gentlewoman, that old idea of being humble. So if I um, am, you know, Alicia and I are close friends, if I see that she has somehow gone astray, then if I'm going to approach her, number one, I have to make sure I'm living by the Spirit, like the first part of the verse said. But secondly, when I approach her, I have to approach her in humility that I am weak and corrupted as well. You know, I can't approach her with a holier-than-thou attitude. We have to understand we all struggle with different things. But we are expected, and what Paul is calling us to here, we are all expected to live in a way that enables us to restore broken sisters. We have to live in a way that enables us to restore broken sisters. We have all heard iron sharpens iron. Probably a lot of you, since you were a little kid, you've heard iron should sharpen iron. But that cannot happen if the iron is not close enough to the other piece of iron. It just can't happen. They can't rub against each other and make each other sharper if they're not close. So we can't restore or even notice something's wrong if we are not investing in other people and if we're not intimately involved with other people. That's the only way that that iron can sharpen iron. And certainly, we can't restore people. So that kind of sin that we're going to talk about sin in some verses that are coming up. And that kind of sin that weighs a person down, and you know what I'm talking about, that kind of sin that gets them down, gets them depressed, you're not going to see that in that surface-level type of interaction that many of us do on a Sunday morning. Especially if you're coming there last minute, you're sitting through the study or whatever, and then you're jetting after that, there's not going to be any restoration there among sisters. It's just not going to happen. So um, it's the time that we invest outside of the time that we have here. Now, like today, we've had some of that time where we could spend with each other and invest in each other and share with each other. Um, But we have to sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. We have to give of ourselves, whether that's our money so we can go out and eat, <laughs> or whether that means you invite somebody over to your house. But regardless, you're going to have to give up some of your own time if you're going to invest in other women and make sure that you know, you're know you intimately involved. Even Otherwise, you're not going to know what's going on with them. So that puts us in the position to restore. So there are going to be a couple of times in here that I'm going to tell you to tuck your toes, and this is one of them. <laughs> So tuck your toes in, or they'll get stomped on. You have no right to restore a person if you weren't intimately involved with her before that sin was cited. You don't have the right. Because you are not showing her love before that. So she will certainly not see that as love when you point out what she's doing wrong. So we have to, it's very important that we become intimately involved with one another. And whatever that means. If it means you do like what Alicia has done, and she forms a little small group, and they do some little study together. That's become more intimate, right, Carrie? Would you say you're more intimately involved with those other two ladies now, right? So don't expect it of other people. (laughs) What are you doing? What are you personally doing? Because remember, it said brothers and sisters. 
It didn't say Steve. It didn't say just Betsy. You know, it's saying we are all called to that. And something that Steve has pointed out numerous times, and actually Karen just quoted it to me just a moment ago when we were talking, remember when you are restoring, (laughs) that it's restoring, and that truth without love is brutality. So if you seek to restore that woman by just pointing out her sin, and there's no love in that and no intimacy in that, and you haven't, you know, spent that time loving on her before that, then it's going to be seen as brutality. But then on the flip side, love without truth is hypocrisy. And I don't remember who did that study today, but talked about being what a hypocrite really... Was that you, Rit? Who talked about hypocrisy? Yeah. So remember that if you feel like you're loving somebody (laughs) by not going to her when you see that she's in sin, that's hypocrisy. You are called in love and truth together to restore that sister. And if I think if we can start thinking of it as restoration, that will even help how we approach someone too. And that's the word that's translated there is to restore. So that goal, remember, is we want them to be restored, and that means not ignored, not excused, not destroyed. So, okay, so verse 2. It gets harder, by the way, <laughs> through these verses. Verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. I think that's probably a sermon all by itself. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. It does not say expect others to bear your burdens. That's not what it says. But the modern church has taken this view of we are creating people who come to church expecting others to serve them. Would you agree with that? That is not what scripture says. It says carry each other's burdens. That is your personal call, is to carry your sister's burdens. Not expecting them to carry yours, but it's a call to you to go with the mentality that you're going to spend time, you're going to get intimately involved with people so you know what their burdens are, so you can carry them. So we want to be other-centered like Christ rather than being self-centered and going with the attitude of, well, scripture says, Betsy's supposed to carry my burden, so... Why isn't she helping me? Well, what's Betsy's burden? Do you even know? Because that's, that's how you should look at it. I mean, and the more we struggle, the more we should think about other people's burdens. And, you know, what are we doing for each other? Now, the second part of that says, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? So what would you say the law of Christ is? Love. Yes. John 13. 34 and 35, that new commandment, love each other. It's how the world's going to know whose you are. (laughs) And if we are carrying each other's burdens, that's that law. We're loving each other. Verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, that always cracks me up. I can't read that without it being funny to me. I don't, (laughs) maybe it's because I teach teenagers. I don't know. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. They're tricking themselves. So thinking you're something when you're nothing works two ways. First of all, you refuse to carry other people's burdens because since you don't struggle with that same burden, you think you're better than they are, and it's pride. Now, on the flip side, because I know some of you, and I know some of you have a personality like mine, some of you are on the other side of that pride, though, where you refuse other people helping you with your burden out of pride. And see, there were giggles, because I know you. (laughs) So... 
Some of us get prideful and just think, oh, that is so dumb that she is still struggling with the same crud that she's been struggling with since she was 12. And we get frustrated with them. That's pride. That's thinking we're something when remember who we are and where we came from. Okay? We can't judge people like that and their sin. It does get frustrating. I know. You should work with teenagers. So <laughs> it's like, really, the same thing? But don't forget that other side of pride where we refuse the help that has been offered to us, too. That's just as bad. So, verses 4 and 5. Each one then should test their own actions. Now, I have to just tell you, I told some of you this this morning, this drives me crazy in the NIV. I'm an English teacher, and if that were a student paper, I would mark it. Each one is one. Should test T-H-E-I-R, that's more than one, and that drives me nuts. That's called pronoun antecedent disagreement. Uh, yeah. I know the King James is correct. But the NIV, it has fallen to the wayside. So. Oh, well, see, I copied mine out of the old. That had brothers and sisters, though, at the beginning, which I liked. So anyway, that drives me crazy. So maybe somebody griped and they fixed it. <laughs> so anyway, each one should test their own actions. Each one should test his or her own actions. Then he or she can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Okay, first of all, remember what verse 2 said? Carry each other's burdens. So some people will read this and look at verse 5 and go, so the Bible just contradicted itself. It says you're supposed to carry your own. When you look at the Greek, I know in the King James that it, both of those words, it's translated burden, right? You guys have the King James? Um, in the translation I have, the first one is translated burden. The second one is translated load. But they are not the same word in the Greek. They're different words. So a burden is a weight that is too much to bear alone. That's what we're supposed to carry for each other. You know, things that people struggle with that weigh them down, the things that get them down. That's the first one, and that's from verse 2, where we carry each other's. But in verse 5, where it says carry your own load, that Greek word carries the idea of a task, of work, of, you know, the stuff we're supposed to do. (laughs) And that's a very different idea. So the first one is the stuff that weighs you down, whereas in verse 5, it's, you know, and it's translated the same word in some translations, but it's a personal responsibility that we have. And in that one, we are not to compare ourselves to others. And in general, women struggle with comparing themselves to others, <laughs> in general. But some of you have that type A personality where it's kind of what defines you, and it's how you work, and it's why you're down all the time. Is because you're constantly comparing yourselves to others. Guys, it's scriptural. We're not to do that, Period. And it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about the burden of sin, like the first one. You're not supposed to compare yourself with other people's sins either. Everybody struggles different. So whether it's sin's burden, life's burden, or your workload that God has called you to, we are not to compare ourselves to others, period. So I don't, I mean, he blatantly says it there, but it's not a competition. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about that. It's not a competition, but most of us live that way. We live like it's a competition, so... And when you compare yourself to others, you are either going to come up short and depress yourself or you're going to become prideful because you see that you're better than they are or something. And both of those are wrong. So if you just don't compare yourself to others, you don't have that problem. Verses 6 through 10. 
Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction, that means any student of the word, anybody who receives instruction, in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. So that's a spiritual payment, right? Just want to point that out. Let us not become weary in doing good. Anybody ever get weary doing good? You know, some of you probably feel like there's no rest for the (laughs) weary kind of thing or there's no punishment, you know, worse than the people who do good. So we're not to become weary doing good. For the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So we're to persevere. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So on this first part where it says, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Because I'm a pastor's wife, I'm going to literally just read what David Guzik says about that because it feels weird for me to talk about it. (laughs) David Guzik explains the word share in verse 6 is focused on financial support. This is a basic, though sometimes neglected, spiritual principle. Those who feed and bless you spiritually should be supported by you financially. And it's the idea of investing in another. You invest. So your pastor can't give up work in order to study and do all the things that he needs to do if we're not going to support him. And we have several different pastors like I said, represented here. You need to be supporting your pastor financially or he can't do what he's doing because he has to go work to pay his bills. So it's pretty simple there. But I do think it's interesting. It's a major way that we have fellowship with our pastor. And what does fellowship mean? ODFers? Partnership. The word for fellowship, in fact, is koinonia, which a lot of you have heard before, and that's K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A for you guys that like to write your Greek words down. The word for share that is used in in verse 6 is koinonito. So it's the idea that you're giving of your finances, but it's in order to partnership with your pastor. So it's very closely related to koinonia, which is fellowship. I mean, it looks almost exactly like it, it, so I think that's kind of cool. So you guys that like to write those down, it's K-O-I-N-O-N-E-I-T-O, koinonito, which is just fun to say. It's like saying nito. So, when you share with your pastor, it's not throwing money away. Paul says that's investing in seed sowing. It's an investment, literally. And we're not to grow weary doing that kind of good for all people, but especially those who belong to our Christian family. So, you know where it says, especially those who belong to your Christian family? This is one of those toe-tuck times. And I was talking to Debbie about this when we met earlier. You have to really ask yourself if the believers that you worship with would even call you a friend let alone a family member. And we are called, just about anywhere you want to look in Scripture, you'll see that we're called to be a family. But when you, when you look at it like that, would they even call you a friend? It's very convicting. And that's that idea that we have to be intimately involved and we have to be invested in each other so that we are more than friends. I mean, it's truly family. And it's not that thing of you have to be. It's because you choose to be, because you love them. You choose to love. So... And it's that thing of, are you expecting from others without investing in them? Also. 
So, you know, you can't expect others to always be doing things for you if you have never invested in them and done anything for them. So, and just a little aside for this section of scripture, <clears throat> I try to not sound sarcastic. Let me back up, not sound so sarcastic. And aside, there is a group out there, the Name It, Claim It group, that love to use this section of scripture to say, sow a seed. You give $10 to God, he'll give you $100 back. Is that what you guys see there? It says you sacrifice of your physical things like money, and what kind of reward do you get? It's totally spiritual. I don't know how in the world you could get you get a bonus of money if you, <laughs> if you give. I don't know how they get that. But it is preached on a lot of channels on TV, on the radio. There is a huge movement of sow a seed, sow a seed. That seed is a spiritual seed right there, and it's really obvious to me. So, so it's kind of a soapbox that I need to not get on because I think I'm preaching to the choir. But anyway, <clears throat> that's completely missing the point of that scripture. Okay, that next verse I just think is one of the cutest things in scripture. <laughs> See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? Have any of you ever gotten a text that was in all caps? <laughs> If a teenager sends me one that's in all caps, it's never an accident. If my mom does it, it's because she didn't know how to get the cap walk off. <laughs> but the kids do it, it's they're frustrated or they're really trying to get me to listen to them. And so a lot of people try to say that this was because Paul had a hard time seeing. Well, why would he need to point it out to them? He's saying, do you guys, are you guys paying attention to how big I'm writing this? Because I need you to listen to me. This is important. So it's like the all caps, you know, in texting. He's trying to get their attention. So he goes one more time with this thing about impressing people in verses 12 and 13. And we've already talked about that. I know some of you, that was probably the thing before you took communion that you had to talk to the Lord about, was about worrying what other people think. Well, here it is again, one last time in the, in the book of Galatians. In 12 and 13, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Now, I think everybody else covered all of that about circumcision to, for you guys to understand. This is a grace issue versus doing things in the flesh issue. Following the law, I mean, think of Brit throwing all of those rules out there. That's circumcision. Uncircumcision is, you know, the idea of being free or and literally being a Gentile in those days, and that the Gentiles had been accepted by God, and that was hard for the Jews. But for us, I want us to focus on those two phrases, impress people and avoid being persecuted. Impressing people and avoid being persecuted. You have to ask yourself, and this is hard. I mean, I think in one part of our minds we think it's not hard, but it really is if, if you really think about being put in this situation, and some of you are daily put in this situation. We have to ask ourselves what parts of the Bible we wish would change so we could impress people or avoid being persecuted. And I think one of the hottest topics right now that fits that, as an example, is homosexuality. You will be in a position where it's very difficult to say, this is what scripture says about that. This, that is, because our whole culture has gone a whole nother direction from what it has been in the past. It used to be much easier to say what scripture said. Now, and that's just one thing. I mean, tell people what scripture says about marriage. Tell people what scripture says about any kind of sin, and it's going to be hard. And so you have to ask yourself, what is it in scripture that you wish you could change? And it's really so you're accepted by people. 
You're really trying to be impressed by people if you want them to accept you. Um, and if you don't. <laughs> Guys, who wants to be persecuted? Nobody. So we want, we want to avoid persecution. Somebody else said in one of the studies today, but here's the answer. Know the word, period. <laughs> stick to them what you know. Stick to it. And then please know that this is in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.12. Anybody know what that says? Because you should memorize it. Anybody? Yes. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is a promise of Scripture that if you stand up for what's right, for what's in Scripture, you're going to be persecuted. Now, here's the question. Are you being persecuted? Why not? Because it says if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to get it. (laughs) And if we don't have it now, it's coming. And I think it's going to come for all of us in the form of our whole society is going to shift where it's going to be a problem. But in your daily life, the non-believers that you're around, you've got to ask yourself why you're not being persecuted. Why are they so accepting of you if they're so accepting of you? You know, do they even know what you stand for? And a lot of you have talked about that today in your teachings, about it should just be obvious. Christina talked about it. That fragrance should be so strong that, I mean, we should reek. I mean, it's funny to think of it that way, but we should absolutely reek with Jesus (laughs) to where it's not a question. And we're promised that that's going to cause some persecution. For the people who reject what we stand for, we're going to be persecuted by them. So expect it. Verses 14 through 17. I have no idea. Am I doing okay on time? Yes, I'm good. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't marked that in your Bible, mark it now, even if you're not a Bible marker. I'm not a person who says, now, if you're a person who marks in your Bible, mark in your Bible, mark that one. (laughs) May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified. He tells us why through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. None of that. In other words, the argument that was the argument, he says that's not what matters. What you guys are getting all in a fizz about, that's not even what matters. The argument's not even the right argument. What counts is a new creation. Being new, being different. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. If you're going to follow a rule, follow this rule. If you're wanting to follow a rule, there's the rule. Circumcision, uncircumcision mean nothing but what counts as a new creation. And you're not going to boast except in the cross of Christ. So from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And I'll just as a side note point out for those of you that haven't ever studied this before, there is a, a belief that it's called stigmata that to get the marks of Christ on them, like where the nails were and where the spear was and all of that. Read anything you want to about Paul. The man was beaten, bruised. (laughs) You name it, it happened to him. He had marks for Jesus on him, but they were not the marks of being hung on a a cross. So, I mean, I feel like that's another misapplication, and I'm not really sure how you could get it out of that because, I mean, it's the trouble that's going on with him, and it's because he bears on his body. He's been beaten. He's taken a lot of beatings for standing up. And when you go back and look at the other things he just talked about, that makes sense. He's saying, I'm gonna, I've been persecuted. That's all he means. So he's, he's done that. So at the end of this letter, and remember, because we divide them into chapters, we lose that. This is one letter. It's 
All six chapters all go together. They're not to be separated. So at the end, he explains his motives for writing the whole thing. And talk about being wise. This is the wisest way to live. Boast only in the cross of Christ, which crucifies the world to us and us to the world. That's how you live wisely, is you understand that that's all you have to boast about, nothing else. Because we're new. We are new. You don't have to be that old person anymore. And then there is no better benediction. I mean, I could pray over us or whatever. There is no better benediction than to end the way we started, and that's with grace and Jesus <laughs> right there. So I just kind of speak this over you guys as a prayer. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, sisters. And I think that is an amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. <laughs>